Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to this edition of Between the Lines, the podcast that deciphers the handwriting, unfolds faded pages and dips into the details of diaries, logbooks and letters written during this same week, there or thereabouts, in 1943, some 80 years ago. Let's start with a quick recap of the situation. We're on a countdown to Operation Avalanche now, the amphibious Allied landing on mainland Italy. That will bring together the British 8th Army under Monty, General Bernard Law Montgomery, and the American 5th Army under General Mark Clark. That's a collaboration for you. However, there's a somewhat divisive view on another American general's behaviour this week, and that's General George S. Patton. This is the week that Patton visited an evacuation hospital in Cyprus, and lost his temper at a patient who was showing signs of what today we would probably call post-traumatic stress disorder. While the incident tarnished Patton's reputation for the rest of his military career, it also highlights the presence of PTSD and the need to care for men who suffered as much mentally as they did physically on the battlefield. In Europe, this is also the week it was decided that concentration camp inmates would be used to build German V2 rockets at Peenemunde, and the liquidation of the Vilna ghetto took place. It really is a dark time. That said, the broadcasts in Britain are also full of the news that Soviet troops have recaptured the city of Orel from German forces, and Munda Airfield in New Georgia has been taken by the Americans. And, with a far-reaching impact that probably wasn't imagined at the time, the commander of a wayward patrol torpedo boat, PT-109, gets rescued off Kolobanagara. A certain young Lieutenant John F. Kennedy is at the helm. We'll go out to the South Pacific first, in fact, to catch up with Major General Oscar W. Griswold and 14 Corps. Week of the 4th August, we started to gain more ground. General Harmon present on August 2nd, 3rd and 4th. On the night of the 4th, we had almost forced the enemy back into the sea. Many Japs were killed. Artillery, infantry, mortar, flamethrowers, tanks, all were used. Our losses high. Enemy losses more. 5th August. We took Munda. Tonight I sent the following telegram to Com Sopak, Griswold to Halsey. Culminating 12 days of bitter offensive fighting, our ground troops today wrested Munda from the Japs and presented to you as of 1500 with love as the sole owner. All major enemy organized resistance at Munda has ceased, but mopping up of small parties is still continuing vigorously to the north. This may result in contact later with larger bodies on the north coast. This operation to date has seen the integrated use of naval bombardments, all forms of air bombardment, the use of tanks, flamethrowers, and super artillery, all used in direct support of the infantry, which still had to close and physically wrest the ground from a determined force. Thus, our Munda operation is the finest example in my experience of an all-service, all-American team. 
May I extend for the troops and for myself to you, Comgen Sopak Gift 31, and to all branch, tactical and logistical heads of the following, our sincere appreciation for assistance rendered, vis Navy, Air, Army, Marine Corps, SOSPA, and South Pacific Scouts. Total known Japanese killed to date, 1,671. 28 prisoners of war, of which one died. Seven repatriates, six Chinese and one Malay, recovered. Let's head east to check in with Harry Wilson, still attached to 3 Corps Signal, over at the headquarters of Palestine Command. Harry is also getting some more training. August 1st, as part of the general training programme, we're getting education lectures. A small percentage of every section's off-duty personnel is compelled to attend. And that is how, this afternoon, Bill Penny, Sergeant Watson and myself found ourselves examining the beverage plan with the help of Camp Commandant Major Elliot. Major Elliot was only a little more informed than we were. I like him. He's human and humble, unlike the general run of officers, especially in Tree Corps. His teaching amused me. I liked the loose way he expressed himself, the way he jerked and stammered out his opinions. For example, if a chap loses his job through no fault of his own, well, he put in a dramatic pause here, it's a damn bad show, isn't it? Definitely not right at all, was another one of his expressions. When finished, he invited questions, only to allude to most of them on the grounds that they were outside the subjects. The question of nationalisation of industry cropped up, and to this he replied that personally he had no fancy for state control, too many departments attached to it, something like the army. Nothing like individual enterprise, there was no doubt about it. The big businessmen had made England. They had made their pile, certainly, but they had just as certainly made England. Another drawback was, if you did away with private enterprise, the quality would fall frightfully. Sergeant Watson got up and stressed the need for education above all else. What good was a raised standard of living if people hadn't the education to enjoy it, he asked. Twice, said the Major appreciatively, and he tapped the third condition, ignorance, with his pointer. Tap, tap, tap. The education was adjourned until further notice. I'm not sure we learned a whole lot. Time to hear from someone who's been quiet for a few weeks. We'll head back to the Mediterranean now to check in with Captain Chester B. Hansen. Known to his colleagues as Chet, Hansen was a wartime aide to General Omar M. Bradley. He's 26, a young man, and while his diaries are sparse in places, he was privy to much of what went on in Allied High Command and made copious detailed notes, a reflection on his duties. In a couple of weeks' time, he'll give us a ringside account of a trip from Algiers to London with his general. For now, though, let's hear his first impressions of Sicily. August 1st. We abandoned our Palermo objective, but learned an officer patrol from the 180th Infantry had entered the city to no resistance. The general flew to Army headquarters for a consultation on the new turn, flew in a cub with Captain Bristol and was forced to sit backwards and watch for enemy planes during the hop. He returned at 12 just as I had finished dinner with the nurse's hospital. Natives continued to be surprised, but we were able to land our planes on their roads. We drove to Una for a view of the city and found it customarily disappointing. Likewise, my first beautiful Sicilian girl on a balcony in the city, although I was mindful of Hedy Lamar and Tortilla Flat. Like everything else, this place is poverty-ridden with a peculiar contrast afforded by magnificent government buildings particularly the fascist headquarters, which was emblazoned with the huge plaque on the front. Back to HMS Warspite now, which at the moment is anchored safely off Malta. Captain Herbert Packer, Bertie, is struggling a little with the weather, 
and his crew must struggle with some of the unfortunate but very pragmatic consequences of being at sea and being in a war zone. It's not all bad news, though. Here's Bertie. August 1st. The war has quietened down for us. Air raids most nights, which keep us awake, but that's about it. Hot as hell on board. Down below, one sweats so much that one's natural stupidity increases. A mail arrived at last, and I had an air graph from my Joy Joy, dated 2nd of June. On Friday, we went off for 24 hours exercises in Mare Nostrum. If someone had told me six months ago that we should be exercising our aircraft carrier in a division of battleships off Malta, I should have laughed like an old and humorous horse. Last night, the anti-limpeteer boat blew itself up in some fashion. Five killed and two seriously wounded. Buried the two bodies at sea today from the raider. All tragic and upsetting, but the ship's company took it well, as is right in wartime, and the funeral arrangements on board were simple and impressive. Sewn up in their hammocks and committed to the deep out at sea. Actually, it was rather grisly because the other body, Sam Hopkins, dripped blood over everything through his hammock throughout the ceremony. A bit sick-making in the hot sun, but we never faltered, and all pretended we hadn't noticed poor Sam Hopkins' lack of manners. 2nd of August. Moved round to Grand Harbour and secured to 7 and 7A boys. Here we are, lying in the Grand Harbour, sweating. The sailors wear nothing but white shorts on board and are brown as coffee berries. The thing, now that our part in Husky has died down, it's a challenge to keep everyone merry and bright with games, training classes, ship cleaning, drills and so on. There is only one bottle of beer per man per week allowed, and no food to be had ashore. It is all rationed. Not coupons and things, but still, feeling as though a bit besieged. I have had time now to walk around, and poor Malta is battered. Not burned like towns at home, for these stone houses don't burn, but battered and shattered by high explosive shells. Lunched with His Excellency the Governor, Lord Gort, yesterday at Vandala Palace. To my delight and surprise, found Noel Coward there. Noel seemed equally pleased. Had hoped to get him to visit Warspite, but he has not time. He is visiting all the hospitals and wounded, and then on to Alex. After lunch, had a very good cook's tour of the palace with a ten-minute lecture on the Grand Prior Vendala, 1586, who built the palace. Left at one in the morning. <laughs> now that's what I call a lunch party. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from Between the Lines in just a moment. We'll stay in this theatre and go to Italy next to rejoin Colonel Dr Wilhelm Maus. At 43 years old, Maus has been through one war already. He's now using his medical military experience to service the needs of troops coming into contact with a very determined enemy. He's mentioned the term Feld Lazarette several times. In short, a Feld Lazarette was a mobile medical unit, a field hospital. Usually this would follow a rescue station as a third line of triage support. A field hospital would be some distance behind the front lines. However, when that front starts to move at pace, 
forwards or backwards, the medics have to make decisions about how close their services should be. It's a constantly shifting support system. Here's Mouse. August 1st. Today is the first, and we made the journey to Messina to see how things are going with the Krankenzamenstelle. Everything was going well there. So far, 6,700 passed through, but many lightly sick and wounded who could have remained among the troops. Evacuation using hospital ships are going very well at the moment. The Virgilia had just arrived in the harbor and was slowly being loaded. To absorb the lightly sick closer to northern Italy, I ordered Fellazachet 610 to open up Lazachet for the lightly sick directed on the mainland and ordered Aubert's Absatz von Lefts to make the necessary connections. The journey itself was wonderful. The landscape along the coastal road is beautiful. It must be paradise here in the peacetime. There was an aerial attack in Messina which was essentially aimed at the ferries but did not cause any damage. The fountains were impressive when the bombs exploded next to the target on the surface of the water, and Fleck fired wildly. I don't know whether they hit anything or not, but they ended targeted bombing from low level. Barrage balloons make low level attacks seem very likely. Veer Hodgson, our social worker in North London, picks up those newspapers and, this week, makes some notes about her own thoughts on the fall of fascism. Monday, August Bank Holiday. A most exciting week, for it seems the fall of Mussolini. After all these years of power, when he seemed invincible and it was all so imposing, it has crashed in a heap. The end has been more sudden and complete than anyone expected. What is behind it all we shall not know for many a long day. News has been trickling through all the week. Rumour has it that Donna Rachel, the younger children, Edda, Ciano, Bruno and his wife are all enclosed in a villa. The only one I am sorry for is Donna Rachel. To think of all the laughing about democracy I used to hear when I was in Italy, how that eldest son would have scrapped the House of Savoy and the Pope, all for Mussolini. How must he feel now? Democracy has won again. It's great. Damage to Hamburg this week is colossal almost wiped off the map, even as Hitler promised to do to our cities. The Berliners are frantically digging trenches, just as we did in 1938 and 1940. They expect it to be the next target. It is a terrible thing, but we must give them a taste of their own medicine. They began this bombing. One of the families we help has lost their father, he was a stoker on the aircraft carrier, indomitable. It must have been a torpedo through the engine room as they covered the Sicilian landings. Henry, his eldest, came to show me the telegram. Missing, presumed killed. Went to see the wife. The Admiralty has given her a free pass for Portsmouth to find any news of him. She had neither eaten nor slept since the news. He leaves four children... There is no hope. Married 13 years and they were so happy. She has struggled to keep the home going and pay off the furniture they had bought. He was in a good job. What could I say? I gave her money and have written the case up in our paper. We'll stay in Britain for now and check in on Flight Lieutenant David Nairn Blythe, our newly qualified RAF navigator stationed out in Canada and his parents and his sister back in Edinburgh. Our first air graph is from Julia, or Ma, 
And then we'll hear from David. August the 1st. Dear David, We all enjoyed ourselves at Tommy's wedding on Saturday. All of the summer families were there, except Sam's and Mary's. Tommy is looking very well, and in fact he's a real man now. It was a scorching day, but sad to report that it turned out to be a terrible night, thunder and lightning. We were soaked coming up the road. Joy is sending you on a piece of cake, so you're not forgotten. The photos that Aunt Jean sent were handed round the assembled company and enjoyed by everybody there. Everyone wished that you'd been with us, all very impressed by your recent successes with your exams, mind. Tom played the piano without missing a beat, and the children did their little dances, reels all round. June also obliged, and as I had danced at all the family weddings, I had to keep up tradition and do my stuff too. Life in the old dog yet, eh? Hope everything is going well with you. Really do wish you'd been with us, David. All my love, Ma. August 1st. Dear Ma, I'm so very pleased to receive your airgraph, and I'm looking forward to your letters. As always, I cannot tell you how much they mean to me. Thank you for all your congratulations on my promotion. I can assure you I won't stop here. I will endeavour to get a few more rings on my arm sleeve before I come out of the RAF. And thank you too for all the cooperation and support you've given me in everything I do. I'm glad that Joan is getting on so well these days. And I know Dad is going to be working away soon, but I do hope you tell him that I think about him every day. I can just imagine you writing. I'd like to walk along the path that leads to the green door and then go through that door to the other green doors behind which I've always had so much love and attention. I know it's a bit late, but I'll send some congratulations on to Gene about his wedding. I hope everything is okay at home. Tell Gran to keep knocking them over the net and tell Joan she must look out in the post as I shall try to send her small parcels whenever I can. Can't tell you much more at the moment, Ma. It looks as though we're going west soon. More training. Anyway, I must go now. There's always something new to learn here. Give my love to all the family. Your loving David. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We do hope you found a little insight and were briefly entertained as we were reading. Between the Lines. Between the Lines is a We Have Ways production. Julia Mar Blythe is read by Ruth Sillers. David Blythe is read by Matthew Malthouse. Oscar Griswold is read by Michael Lyons. Chester Hansen is read by Lance Fuller. Via Hodgson is read by Rachel Holland. Heinz Knocker is read by Lucas Veschler. Bertie Packer is read by Paul Waggett. Jack Ward is read by Adam Jarrell. Harry Wilson is read by Joel Emery. Narration is by James Holland and Al Murray. Editing by John Gill and Joey McCarthy. Written and produced by Merrin Walters. The executive producer is Tony Pastor.